If it's your first time with us, uh, we've been preaching verse by verse, uh, section by section through Ephesians, what's called expository preaching, where we, we take the passage and uh, read it, and then I explain it, and then we apply it. And of course, the Holy Spirit will then as well apply it into your own individual lives. But what we want to do is make God's Word clear and just proclaim it. We believe the Word is powerful, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. And if we just preach it and explain it, then God will do that work through His Word that He's promised. So we're now at a major transition. If it is your first day, then of course you're here at a great time because we're right in the middle of the book of Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're at today starting in chapter 4 verse 1 through 3. I want to read it to you and just listen and, and you should sense a bit of a challenge here. This is something that we ought to be striving to live for, striving to accomplish through God's power in our church. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, we ask your help this morning as we daily as we daily walk, as we live before you. Give us your grace. Give us your strength. Give us your mercy and help us to live up to the commands in this passage. Help us to love our church and desire to perform these sacred duties, these things that we are hopefully excited and happy to do for one another. Let us praise and honor you for it. Amen. Now that we know doctrine, which is what we've been studying in chapters 1 through 3, and maybe even in your own life, you've been studying the doctrines of the Bible, theology. Maybe you're like me and you really like theology. Now that we know that, so what? So what are we going to do with that doctrine? Oh, we're we just going to study doctrine our whole lives and, and sort of let our heads swell up and be puffed up with knowledge? Or are we expected to live it out? And it's not either or. Some churches will preach that you don't need to study any more doctrine. You just need to live out and live out what you already know. Well, the problem is the Bible is a big book and there's a lot to learn there. So we should always be learning and we should always be living out what we've learned. We should never just study the Bible and study theology and study even who God is just to make ourselves feel better because we know something that our fellow believer or unbeliever doesn't know. We ought to learn so that we can better praise Him through worship, and so we can live a godly life for Him. That is indeed what Paul is going to get into with the second half of Ephesians. This passage that I just read to you marks the transition from the first section of the book to the second section. The first section, chapters 1 through 3, are Paul's exposition of the doctrine. The doctrine that the church needs to understand about their salvation. It is a doctrine that we need to know so that we can live out what we have been given. But Paul doesn't tell us a lot of what to do to live that out. He just tells us that it is that way. It's called an indicative in grammar. It's just a statement. This, these are the way things are. God has saved you. God has elected. God has predestined. God has adopted. Uh, the, the Son has redeemed you. The Spirit has sealed you. But now we're going to switch to commands. 
Not, not indicatives, but imperatives. In chapters 1 through 3, there was only one command, to remember. And Paul mentioned that uh, in one of those chapters. In 4 through 6, there's 39 imperatives, 39 commands. And one of the main ones we're going to see is walk. Walk a certain way. Live a certain way. Really, this is what makes Ephesians so rich, that you have both doctrine and application side by side. That you have both in this letter. Often Ephesians is thought of as a great theological book, and it is, because we have chapter 1 with these doctrines of grace. But there's actually more practical applications of daily life in Ephesians than any other New Testament book. All of 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6, will be application. And there's more in this one book than any of the others in the New Testament. Well, Paul's going to start off first telling us how we ought to live in the church as Christians. Now, that's opposite than most of us generally think. Generally, we learn something in the Bible and we think, first of all, how do I apply it to myself? And then we think, well, how do I apply it to my marriage, if you're married, or to your family, to your children? Then we go to work. Then we think of the church. That's not how Paul does it. He's going to start with the church first. He will get to marriage. He will get to family. He will get to work. But a whole chapter, chapter 4, is really dedicated to how we live out our lives as Christians in the church body. How do we relate to one another? How do we interact with one another? Because that's extremely important to the apostle. He's planted these churches like Ephesus, the Ephesian church. He wants them to live in a godly way. And he wants the church to interact in a godly way. And if they're not doing that, what kind of witness is that to the world? What are people going to think when they come to the church and see two Christians yelling at each other? What are people going to think when they see two Christians bickering at one another, being impatient with one another? What are unbelievers or even visitors to the church going to think? So, Paul is going to address that in chapter 4, and he's going to start right off the bat by saying how we ought to be, how we ought to live, how we ought to walk with other Christians in the church. Before we dive in, we need to define the church. That's a term often thrown around. What is the church? Is it a building? Well, it's not a building. I hope you realize that. We often associate it with a building, and that's fine to call a building a church, but that's where the church meets. That's why the name has been associated with the building. It's where the church meet. A church is defined biblically as a group of spirit-indwelled believers. People who actually have the Holy Spirit. Not by showing miraculous signs, but by having the Spirit within them, the desire to do the spiritual things that God has called us to do. And they're believers in Christ. They've been redeemed. So a group of spirit-indwelled believers who meet regularly in one locality, in one place. So there is a universal church. But the local church is those believers who meet in one place. And it needs to have three requirements. The word needs to be preached. That's commanded. For a church to be a church, the word needs to be preached. The ordinances, secondly, also need to be observed. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you can have a parachurch organization that might proclaim the word, but doesn't do the ordinances or vice versa. But a church ought to have those. And then number three, church discipline must be exercised. At the the very root of church discipline is just calling out sin as sin. It's correcting a brother or sister in Christ. It's rebuking. 
It is turning them towards repentance, turning them towards Christ. And so those define a church. And so now Paul, assuming that his readers know those things, because they would have gathered it, especially from chapter 2 and also chapter 3, and other letters and other parts of Scripture, he's now going to talk about how to live as a Christian in the church. And he's going to cover three major elements, three major elements that will come up on the screen as well of how to live out the Christian life amongst other believers. How do we do it? How do we put up with people that are not like us? How do we live with others who are not exact copies of ourselves? Well, first of all, Paul says, there's a standard of how you walk. There's a standard of how you live. And that's found in verse 1. And it begins here with this new section in Ephesians, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome under house arrest, and he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He preached the truth of God's word. And people didn't love him. They didn't flock to him. But there were some saved. And there were churches started. But he's been arrested because of the Jews. They stirred up trouble in Jerusalem because he was associating himself with Gentiles. And he got arrested. After that, he was taken to the governor of that area where he stayed for two years. And then he was taken to Rome, and he's been there probably about two years, when he writes this letter. So he wrote four letters then, four epistles, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. They're called the prison letters. Paul is in prison, and he's already told them that, though, in in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Why does he mention it so close to when he's already mentioned it in 3.1? Why is that important? Why is he starting off the application section by saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord? Because it's it's living out what you know to be the Bible's teaching, living out these doctrines that will get you into trouble with the world. And he's just saying right up front, I'm in prison because I obeyed the Lord. I'm in prison because I obeyed the calling that the Lord gave me. Just as Paul walked according to the commands of Christ, he's going to say we should walk as well. Just as Paul obeyed and ended up in trials and tribulations for him, we should expect the same. Isn't that not what Jesus said? If they persecute him, they're certainly going to persecute us. And so Paul's saying that he is a prisoner. Even if it leads to prison, we must follow Christ in obedience. And he's just reminding them in this little short phrase here, and actually better translated prisoner in the Lord here not of the Lord. It's better in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means in the Lord is a little phrase, especially in Ephesians, that means united with Christ. He's united with the Lord. He's a prisoner, yes, in Rome, but he doesn't mention Rome. He's a prisoner who's united with the Lord. This teaching on union with Christ comes up quite a bit in Ephesians. We'll see more of it. But he's just saying, look, I'm a prisoner, but I'm united with Christ, even in my imprisonment. Don't, don't lose hope for me because I have Christ. I, Paul is very hopeful. He's very faithful. He will be released eventually and take the gospel to new areas. But he says, look, I'm united with Christ. It's him that I want to please. It's him that we should obey. And just as if Paul is united with Christ and in prison, and he still wants to obey the Lord and walk in a manner worthy of his calling, we ought to obey the Lord because we're united with Christ. We don't do it to earn our salvation. 
you've already been saved, if you've been justified, if you've been fully forgiven of your sins because you've trusted in Christ and repented, now you want to obey the Lord. That's why he gave you, one of the reasons he gave you the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, look, if you're united with Christ, you will want to walk, you will want to live a certain way. Well, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in verse 1. I implore you. That's a little bit of a tame translation. I like more exhort. Exhort has the idea of, of strongly urging. Like a preacher will strongly urge and maybe even point at you as he's preaching. Exhortation. The word here uh, means to, to call out, to encourage very strongly to do the right thing. What's he encouraging them to do? What's he urging them to do? To walk. The Greek word is peripateo. It means to go about, to walk around. That's literally what it means, just to walk around. But it's used figuratively in the Bible, mainly in the Old Testament, it carries over into the New, of your lifestyle. As you're walking around through life, as you're going through the seasons of life and the places of life and the things of life, how are you living? And so Paul says, I I implore you to walk a certain way. Walking means how to conduct your life. Not just a snapshot of your sin that you did in one minute's time, but just your overall lifestyle. How is it? Is it a lifestyle growing and becoming more and holy, more sanctified? Or other books will challenge you to consider, examine the way you walk. The whole Bible really calls us to examine as Christians how we walk. And Paul urges them, walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That's the standard. That's the standard of how you're to walk. What should your walk look like? Well, it ought to look like something that's worthy of the calling with which you have been called. A worthy life, a worthy conduct, a worthy behavior. Worthy means weightiness, value. It's, it's worth something. And it's a, an ancient term in, in Greek that would mean to balance the scales out. So if you wanted to weigh something, it would bring the scales down and then you had to put something worthy on the other side to bring it back up so that you could accurately determine how much it weighed. And Paul is saying, live the Christian life, live a life that matches up with your position in Christ. How do we know about our position in Christ? Well, he's told us, chapters 1 through 3, all the things that God has given us. That is a weighty call, isn't it? You've been given all this in Christ, now live like it. Live out your position in Christ. You've been united with the Son of God. You have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity within you. Live like it. Walk like it. Have a lifestyle like that. He urges them to because we, have, we still have indwelling sin. And we want to go back into that sin. And we want to go back into sinful thoughts and sinful actions and sinful things in our life. And Paul's encouraging them. He's not necessarily mentioning that they've already done these things and gone into sin, but he's just saying as a general encouragement, live a life that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We need to look at this idea of God's calling because he mentions it twice. He doesn't just say worthy of your calling, but it's the calling with which you have been called. It's, It's a way of saying it twice to emphasize God's calling. What is God's calling? It's the effectual calling. It's irresistible grace. If you're familiar with the doctrines of grace, God has called your heart 
and converted you and changed your heart so that you could believe. It was Valentine's Day recently and there's many things that go around and I don't do a a whole lot of big things for my wife on Valentine's Day, but I send her theological Valentines. And my favorite is the one of John MacArthur where he says something like, I love you, Uh, you're irresistible, like irresistible grace. Everybody knows, hopefully, that follows John MacArthur what irresistible grace is. And it's the doctrine of a divine summons. It's a divine summons by God the Father upon your heart. It's the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart. This doctrine, this doctrine is weighty. It is, it is mighty. It is stronger than the love we have for our spouse on Valentine's Day. It is God's love for his elect, for those he's predestined. He sends a summons to their heart, and the Holy Spirit changes their heart, regenerates their heart. It happens at the same time as regeneration. The summons comes. God's calling. The Father's calling. It's not an audible call. You don't hear God's voice. It's call upon the heart to believe. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us and enlightens our mind. We can suddenly understand the truth. We believe the truth. We turn from our sin. Well, Paul's already taught them about the calling. Look back at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is God's sovereign call. It's a divine call. But he used other words to describe it. If we were to just to flush it out a bit and connect it to some other pieces in the order of salvation. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption. So calling fits right in there between predestined and adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. God's call is part of that order. Uh, When God elects, when he predestines, that's in eternity past. But when you're saved, the moment you're saved, that's when God has called you. That's when the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. And so Paul is saying, look, now you know what God has done for you. If you didn't know it before, Paul says, I told you back in the beginning of my letter, now live like it. Live like that. How heavy and weighty is this? How important is this calling? You've probably heard Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. Romans 8 and 9 are really full of God's sovereignty. Well, he says, those who he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he has also justified. So if it wasn't for God's calling, we, we wouldn't even be saved. We wouldn't become Christians. We wouldn't even be united with Christ. This is not an invitation. It's not a wooing. Somebody was recently asking me, they had had a conversation with somebody about how God just, God woos us. He kind of is is gently just asking us. Now this is God's call upon the heart. Jesus says it like this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That, That Greek word means casting the net and drawing the fish in. The thing that we have a problem with is really the, the doctrinal issue of what if we don't want to come? God changes our heart, so we do want to come. And praise the Lord. If he didn't change your heart, then you would never come. We sing that in many hymns. God gives us the ability. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Paul's already taught on it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So yes, it happens through faith, but it's God's grace that saves you. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
because we cannot come to God ourselves. We can't earn it. We can't suddenly just change our minds. We can't get rid of the sin nature because we're, we're totally depraved, because we're unable, the Bible says, to choose God or do anything good. God must take the first action. God must take that initiative. God must change the heart. It's called monergism or monergistic, meaning one person does the work and that's God. Yes, we must have faith. Yes, we must repent. Paul has taught that. But Paul says, don't pat yourself on the back for faith and repentance. God did the work. He called you. And that is a mighty calling. That is a holy calling. That is a great calling. And now he says, live according to that. If God is going to take a wretched sinner like you and I and save us, we cannot pay him back for that. But we can live for him. We can live it out. We can live out what he's given us and obey him and honor him and praise him. And so that's what Paul is, is calling them to do, what he's calling us to do. Not just individually, but also in a corporate body. He's called us individually to salvation. But then Ephesians chapter 2, he's put us in a body, Jew and Gentile, the body of Christ. So let's live it out. Let's live out the Christian life in such a way that matches the calling that God has put upon our heart for salvation. Secondly, though, he tells us the attitude we're to have as we walk through the Christian life amongst one another. What kind of attitude are we to have? What kind of attitude in our heart should we have? What kind of approach should we take in our hearts and minds as we walk? What should we be thinking about? Because there's going to be problems. There's going to be, if there's problems in a marriage, if there's problems in a parent-child relationship, we shouldn't come to church and think there's not going to be problems. There's going to be problems. And Paul says before he even hears about the problems, he just wants everyone to know, here's the attitude we should have. Verse 2, with all humility. We're to walk with all humility. As we live our Christian lives with other believers, we must do so with humility. We must humble ourselves. Uh, the meaning of the, the underlying word here for humility, it means to have a humble attitude without arrogance. To lower yourself. It's the opposite of being high-minded and haughty. Thinking that you're better than everybody else. That you're wiser. That you know more. That you're more holy, that you're more sanctified than these other Christians that you're around. That you're better. That God loves you more. Those are prideful. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is lowering yourself. It literally means in the Bible to lower yourself down, either physically or in this case, spiritually, figuratively. Lower yourself in the eyes of God and in the eyes of others. The interesting thing about this word in Greek is it's not found before the Bible. It's not found before the Bible because humility was looked down upon. Who wants to be humble in the Greco-Roman world? It, it's associated with weakness. It's associated with a lack of strength. No man wants to be humble, and no woman wanted to be humble. But it shows up in the Bible. We don't even know if the Bible writers came up with it from some other words or it was used amongst the people at this time, and so the, the writers brought it into Scripture. But the Greeks and the Romans hated humility. It was a weakness. They did not care for it at all. But Christians elevated this teaching of humility. It's something we ought to strive for. It's something that we see over and over in the book of Proverbs. Humble yourself. Humble yourself, and God will raise you up. If you're already high-minded, if you're already haughty, then God's going to lower you through discipline, through trials in your life. 
Jesus says in Matthew 18, 4, that his followers ought to be humble. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's got a little child there, and he says, look, you need to lower yourself. These children are seen as lowly. They're, they're below adults. And you need to lower yourself. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not the person who thinks they're the strongest. It's the person who thinks they're the lowest, the most humble. In Acts 20, Paul himself models this for the elders in Ephesus. Remember in Acts, he's, he's coming back through in Acts 20. He doesn't go to Ephesus, but he asks the elders to come down and meet him at a stopping point on the way to Rome. So he's on a ship. He's going to his imprisonment, his trial in Rome. And in Acts 20, 19, he tells these elders in Ephesus, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. He modeled it for them. He showed them what it meant to be humble. He tells the Philippians, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. That's the opposite of humility. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What does it look like to be humble? To regard others more important than yourselves. To regard others more important than yourselves, especially in the church. 1 Peter 5.5, 5. Peter says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, because he's been addressing different age groups and men and women, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's citing a proverb. God is against those who are prideful, but God gives grace to the humble. So if you want God's discipline, then be prideful. It's not only going to disrupt your life in the church and bring upon God's discipline, or you can obey Scripture, and that's what we're called to do, and we are to be humble. Walk through the Christian life in the church with humility. That means that when there's divisions, when there's disunity, then you need to lower yourself. I'm not talking about doctrinal divisions. We're not talking about uh, those kinds of divisions. We're just talking about preferences. Paul's saying, look, there's going to be a lot of issues in the church. You need to lower yourself. You need to submit yourself to others. Because pride provokes divisions. Pride causes disunity. The body of Christ is not to be divided. And you know the number one sin of division? Pride. I want what I want, and I want it now, and you better do it right now and give me what I want. That's pride, and we all do it, don't we? We all do it in some fashion, even if it's just in our minds. Even if we never say it, we have to battle it in our minds. Pride destroys the church. Humility edifies and builds up the church. Also, very closely related, within the same phrase, with all gentleness. Not only all humility, but the word all here also modifies gentleness. All gentleness. This word that underlies gentleness means the, the quality of not being overly impressed by one's self-importance. And it's very, very similar to the pride issue we just looked at, but slightly different. It's the opposite here of being harsh in your dealings with others. Being harsh. The person who is not gentle is harsh. It was used in ancient Greek to speak of people who had a calm disposition. Gentleness is somebody with a calm disposition as well as a moderate person. Moses is said and described by this word to be a gentle man before God. This is the man or woman who is gentle and does not give in to resentment, retaliation, or revenge. 
a gentle person doesn't give in to those things. Someone may have sinned against you. You may initially have the urgings, the desires to retaliate. But a gentle person says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to honor Christ. And so Paul calls us to walk like that. It, it used to be translated meekness. You've probably heard of meekness. Being meek, one of the Beatitudes. But meekness is associated today with weakness. And so translations use gentleness. I think that's a better word for us today. This word does not mean weakness, though. To be gentle in the Lord is not to be weak. It's not to really even be timid or lack courage. But it's to restrain. It's to have self-control over your emotions, over your heart desires. To not let your anger get out of control. To not seek to say something back to someone when they're rude to you. Jesus uses it of himself. Both of these words, actually, he uses it of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, that's the word here, and humble, that's the one we just looked at, humility, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We can come to Christ. He's gentle with us. He's not harsh. He's not prideful. He's not going to reject us. He's gentle. He's humble. If we come to him, he will not cast us out. Paul describes Christ as well. 2 Corinthians 10.1 Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So even the NASB still uses meekness there for a different word. But gentleness is describing Christ. He's gentle. Was he weak? though, because he was gentle? Was he weak when he overturned the the tables in the temple, the money changers? Was that weakness? No, it wasn't weakness, but it was gentleness, although they wouldn't have thought that because he wasn't being prideful. He wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being harsh, even though the world would think that. He had a zealousness for the Lord, and he was gentle. He was gentle. He confronted the Pharisees. He drove out the money changers, but he was gentle. And only Christians today who are controlled by the Spirit can exhibit such an attitude in their life. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's one of the fruits that will be in your life from the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect at it, but we will have some growth in that area. We hopefully will be gentle with other believers, with those in our household even. Gentleness. A person who has, yes, a righteous anger at the proper time, but they're not angry at the wrong time. If you're harsh, you're angry at the wrong time. You're angry over everything. But if you're gentle, you're angry at the right time. You're angry with a righteous anger just when it's needed, when it lines up with what God's Word says. But even in that anger, you don't sin. Paul will get to that later in chapter 4 of Ephesians. When someone sins against you, gentleness means that we seek to not harm them, but restore them. Galatians 6.1, he uses this word. He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are believers, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. How do we restore them? With the spirit, not the Holy Spirit here, but our own attitude, our own spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to himself so that you will not be tempted. You must be gentle towards others when they sin. If church discipline is going on, then that's still done with gentleness. Again, not weakness. But you're not overly harsh. You're not even harsh at all because you're gentle, like the Lord would be. 
Again, in 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If you're harsh to your fellow believers who are wrong about something, or who are living maybe a sinful lifestyle, if you're harsh, what's that going to do to them? Is that going to bring them close or push them away? It's going to push them away. And Paul says, be gentle. Not for pragmatic reasons, not just because that works more often than not, but because that's what God calls us to do. God is gentle. Christ is gentle. So we're to be humble, we're to be gentle. And then lastly, the attitude we're to have as we live the Christian life in the church is patience. Walk in a manner worthy with patience. Another fruit of the Spirit. It means a state of being able to bear up under provocation. To bear up under forbearance. To be patient towards others. Long-suffering. You need to forbear with them. Remaining calm when someone irritates you. Remaining calm when someone provokes you is the idea here. That even when they provoke you, you don't provoke back. You're patient. You're calm. You're not going to get irritable. You're not going to have a short temper with other believers just because they've done something to you. Paul speaks a lot about this. In, in 1 Timothy, he mentions... 1 Timothy 1, 16 says, Christ demonstrated his great patience towards me, Paul says. Talk about patience. How much patience did the Lord have with you when he saved you and me when he saved me? There's a lot of patience there. All of my sin, and yet he still saves us? That's what Paul's saying. Christ had a perfect, a great patience. 2 Timothy 4, 2, he calls Timothy, preach the word. And he says, in season, out of season, with great patience and instruction. When you teach the Bible, when you preach the Bible, sometimes people don't like it. They feel like you're prodding them and poking them, and they, they lash out. And Paul says to Timothy, be patient. Be patient. It's going to take a while. Just keep instructing and be very patient. Again, this is used to describe God himself. Anytime something is used to describe God and we are supposed to do it, it should make us bow before God and ask for his help. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think lightly of God's patience? Don't you remember? That's what led you to repentance to begin with? Don't think lightly of God's tolerance and kindness and patience. Well, we ought to be patient, Paul says. That's how we ought to walk together as Christians. God is patient. God is long-suffering. How patient was Jesus with the disciples? Three years. Seems like they didn't have a clue sometimes. He's very patient with them. Very patient with them. God is patient, even with the world, even with unbelievers. As he brings in his elect, the Bible teaches that God is patient with the world. Someday they will be judged, but right now, he's not brought about judgment yet. He's long-suffering. So as Christians in the church, we've got to hold back any kind of impatience. Impatience means I want you, again, to do what I want you to right now. That's impatience. Or I'm going to respond and I'm going to say something I shouldn't say right away instead of being patient. Or I'm going to get angry. That's impatience. That's vengeance. Give that to the Lord. Trust in Him. If someone sins against you, if it's a big enough sin, you need to take it to the leadership after you've gone with another brother or sister in Christ, just like in Matthew 18. But, you know, if it's a small thing that you can overlook, the Bible says overlook it. Overlook it. Be patient. Be gentle. Instruct them. Counsel them. Show them where they're wrong if need be. But be patient. How long did it take you to change? 
How long did it take you to grow in your knowledge of the Lord? So that's the attitude we're to have. He describes it there in the first part of verse 2. Believers who have the Holy Spirit have to be putting forth effort for those things. Those don't just happen. You don't just wake up and have humility. God's given us all the tools. He's given us the power. He's given us the Spirit. He's given us His Word. But we've got to exercise those things. We've got to grow in them. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Now lastly, lastly, the method of your walk. So the standard is according to the calling in which we've been called. The attitude we just covered. And now the method. How are you to go about walking? What actually should you be doing? So you have this attitude of, of the things I just mentioned. So when things happen to you, you know how to respond. But how are you to proactively go about your Christian walk in the church? What should be your focus? And he gives us two. Two things at the end here of verse 2 and then all of verse 3. Showing tolerance for one another in love. How should we walk? Well, you ought to walk in a way that shows tolerance to other people in the church in love. The word showing tolerance is a verb. It means to bear with, to put up with. To put up with. We've got to put up with one another. Even when we're not exactly alike. Even when we are difficult or foolish, we've got to put up with one another. Bear with one another. Harold Honer, who's written really the, the huge volume on Ephesians, the best commentary, he says this word means tolerating others' faults and sometimes their grating personality and their quirks. You've got to overlook their faults. You don't make a big deal out of it. When people bother you, you just don't make a big deal out of it. You have to overlook it. Now, if it's an obvious sin, Paul's not talking about that. He will discuss that at other points, but he's just saying, look, the faults that people have, the quirks that they have, the irritable personality that they have, sometimes you just have to overlook it. Don't make a big deal. Put up with it, but do it in love. Allow other people to express their views, their actions, even though that might irritate you, even though you might disagree with it. It's not a, a clear sin or a clear issue in Scripture. Then overlook it. A real life in the church means that you're going to have to put up with differences. We're all different. Thank the Lord we're not all the same. You know what that's called when we're all exactly the same? It's called a cult. We all dress the same. We all watch the same. We all listen to the same. We all eat the same. That's a cult. There are people like that. There are churches like that. I recently heard of a church where they said, uh, the pastor tells the people, you can't listen or read anything outside of that church. Don't listen to any other preachers. Don't read any Christian books. That's a cult. That's not what he's saying. We're not to have uniformity where we all look alike, but we're to have unity here by showing tolerance for one another in love. You might like a different sports team than the other person. You might have different hobbies. You might not care anything about sports. Your fellow believer in Christ might love football. You might not care about hunting. A fellow believer might love hunting. You might have different interests, political interests. You might be very political. That's all your friend talks about. And you might not be political at all. We've got to put up with that. We've got to overlook that. That's not something to be divided over to cause problems. That person you're talking to might be very slow to learn and study the Bible. It might annoy you that you keep covering the same thing with them in Scripture and they're not getting it. We've got to put up with it. Continue. With patience, instructing. You might be annoyed that somebody's always making jokes where you're more serious-minded. Or you might be the one that doesn't like people who are serious-minded and you like to make jokes. You might be prone to misunderstanding or the person you're talking to is prone to misunderstanding 
And you say, I'm just not going to be around them because they misunderstand everything I say. But Paul says, no, we've got to put up with that. We're one church. We're one body. We don't get to choose a different family. God's put us in this family. This is our family right now. You might be an overanalyzer and people don't want to put up with you, but they have to. Or maybe you don't like to be over around others who are overanalyzers. I'm talking about quirks, tics, difficult speech, people who are too loud when they talk, people who are too quiet when they talk, all of these things that can just bother us. And instead of saying, I don't want to be around that person, get me away from this person, Paul says, put up with it. But do so in love. In love. Jesus, in Luke 9.41, when the disciples could not cast out the demon from the boy. You remember that? He comes down from the mountain. They can't cast out the demon from the boy, the one that throws the boy in the fire and in the water. And he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? It's the same word here, put up with you. Bring your son here. He's talking to his own disciples and he's frustrated in a godly frustration and he says, how long should I put up with you? But he put up with them a long time, didn't he? He put up with them a long time. He saved them. He continues to put up with all of us who are disciples in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 13, you should bear with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Bear with one another. Same word here, same idea. Put up with one another. Even if it's not just a quirk, but actually one of these sins, forgive them. The Lord forgave you, can't you forgive others? So we have to tolerate differences. Don't be shocked when somebody in the church uh, tells you that they like something different or do something different. Let's put up with it. Unless it's a sin, let's put up with it. Do this, though, in love. Put up with others in love. What is love? 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Patient. We just talked about patience, didn't we? Love does not take account of any wrong that's been received. Love bears all things, meaning it puts up with all things. It endures all things. It's long-suffering. You put up with others who aren't exactly like you because it's the loving thing to do, in other words. It's the loving thing to do in the church. You're not perfect. People put up with you. Can't you put up with others in the church? I'm not perfect. Y'all put up with me every week. You come here and listen to me preach. Can't we put up with one another in love? And then lastly, the other method that's equal to this, that's parallel to this, is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So not only are we putting up with one another in love, but we're actively working on something to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is going to launch a large section that we'll start into next week on what is unity in the church. And it starts in verse 4. It starts here, picks up more in verse 4, and all the way down through verse 16. What does unity look like in the church? Well, he says, be diligent to do this. Be especially focused, in other words, on accomplishing this obligation. That's what the word means. Be diligent, be zealous, be eager, take pains, make every effort to do it. You can't just sit back and be diligent about something. You've got to work at it. You, all of you, have to work at it for the church to be unified. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling, Paul says, by making every effort to preserve unity in the church. What is unity? It's oneness. Again, not uniformity, not that we all look exactly alike in our cult, but that we're one together in the Lord. 
that we're one together in our beliefs and we're one together in our service and our caring and our love for one another. We worship together. We're one in the Spirit. And he says it's a unity of the Spirit. It's something that originated from the Spirit to begin with. The Spirit saved you and he put you in the church. And he created this unity with other believers. Now we need to work to preserve it, Paul says, to maintain it. And it's not just unity, but it's a bond of peace. Do you see that? Bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This word bond means chains. Paul said he's in chains. And it's ironic that here he uses the word chains or or bondage for peace. But it's a peace that the Spirit gives us that he bonds us together with. The Spirit's already worked in this. And he's put us together. And he's bound us together with others. We actually have to work to separate ourselves. Because the Spirit's already put us there to begin with. So to separate yourself from the body of Christ takes some sinful work to do. Because we start out the Christian life being in the universal church and then we should find our way to a local church. And if it's the right, good, and holy church, we should not separate from it. This brings up the question, what about leaving a church? Good application question here. Is it ever right to leave a church? Well, it's right to leave a church if the church doesn't match up to the definition of a church, which I gave you in the beginning of the sermon. It's right to leave a church if it's a false church or if it's a true church, but does not practice or preach the Bible. Doesn't have church discipline. Maybe they preach the word, but don't actually live out the word. That's not what he's saying here because he's going to define later what unity looks like. We'll look at that next week. If it's not a true church or if it's a group of believers who aren't obeying scripture, then you should split from it. But otherwise, you've got to work to preserve the bond of peace. We never sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. We don't just say whatever you want to believe and we'll just stay together. That's how liberal denominations start. That's how liberal churches are. That's not what Paul's saying. He'll give a list of doctrine in verses 4 through 6. But we got to put forth effort to keep what the Spirit gave us. Now ultimately it's God working through us. You understand the effort we put forth is God working through us. But Paul's saying you need to be working on this, preserving, be diligent, be focused, be zealous. I'm going to give you a quick list of things that can undermine unity in the church. If you've been in our membership class, we cover them in detail. If you're about to come to our class, we'll cover these. The first one, a healthy church is unified around biblical doctrine. If they're not, if they're not unified around doctrine, then unity is being disrupted. There's going to be a split eventually. Legalism can disrupt unity. Legalism. Elevating your preferences, that's elevating your preferences to law. Saying, I want this, and even though it's not in Scripture, I'm going to make you do it. That's legalism. Or, you're not a Christian if you don't do it. Or, earn your salvation by doing these things. A critical spirit can undermine unity. Isolating yourself from the body. This can be really tempting. We get down on ourselves. We don't feel well. Last thing we want to do is come around a bunch of holy people, because everybody else is perfect here, right? And so we think, I'm going to isolate myself. That's disruptive. Because what did you just do? You just cut off the finger of the body. And you cut off another finger of the next person who feels that way. And, and the body's fragmented. It's not always easy to come to church. It's not always easy for me. I don't always, as I mentioned before, feel 100% like 
I should be standing in this pulpit preaching. It's a weighty thing. doesn't matter. God says, be here, be together, love one another, bear up with one another, put up with one another. Gossip or slander can divide the body. Expecting perfection. Again, none of us are perfect. Charles Spurgeon said, when you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Because none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. And don't expect perfection in others. When you join a church, expect that the Bible will be taught and followed as best as the people can as they're growing, that the leaders are upholding the Bible and the scriptures and the standard. But don't expect perfection. That leads to the next one, unbiblical expectations of the leadership. The Bible defines what a leader should be. The Bible defines what an elder should be. The Bible defines what a deacon should be. And the minute a person expects more than Scripture, they've now got unbiblical expectations of leadership. Elevating your preferences to a doctrinal level is just another way of talking about legalism. The carpet's always the carpet gets the bad rap, right? It's always the color of the carpet that divides a church. But that's actually happened in some churches. It's often more serious than that. I saw recently where a church was kicking out all the older folks. They were going to kick out all the older folks so they could bring in more younger folks. That's elevating their preferences. They want a young, thriving, young church, and they just kicked out anybody with gray hair. And lastly, forgetting that it's Christ's church, and we're to do what he commands us to. It's Christ's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. We lead, but it's Christ's church, and we have to do what he says here, not just what we want. God takes this seriously. It's so seriously that in Titus 3.10, Paul says, Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Unity is so important. It's so serious to God that if somebody's trying to divide, you don't even go through the steps in Matthew 18. You jump right to the third step. Reject them after two warnings. Titus 3.10 says that. This type of divisive person is disciplined by the leadership quickly. Division is such an important issue. God wants it dealt with quickly. I want to close just reminding you that this is how we're to walk. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that Paul calls us to live. These are commands of Christ, not just a man named Paul. He's an apostle. He's a messenger. He's sent by Christ to deliver a message. And the message is walk with a manner that's worthy of your calling. That's the standard. Walk with the right attitude. Humility, gentleness, and patience, and be diligent to preserve that unity in the church. Put up with one another. So I pray that we can do that as a church. We, we've done well, praise the Lord. We continue to see good fruit and so much growth, not just numbers, but growth individually in each of our hearts since we planted this church. So let's ask God now for more help to do that very thing. Lord, we need your help. We're, we're imperfect. We are struggling with temptations we're struggling with desires we're struggling with sins of the flesh still but you've equipped us with everything you've given us everything we need we've talked recently about the power the strength that you give us about how we're united with christ how we have the spirit within us we can do these things we need to pursue them we need to put effort into them Help us with that, God. Help us to be a church that's loving, a church that's known for its patience and its gentleness, not just sound doctrine. Yes, we want sound doctrine, but we want to be unified. We want that to be obvious to anyone who steps in among us. Let us be unified. Let us put up with one another in love. Let us seek the face of Christ. This is his body, and we ought to love his body. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.